The media really is the enemy of the people. Now, I know that I have a lot of homeschool families that listen to this podcast, and I want to say right at the very beginning that the second half of our podcast today, we are going to be talking about uh, sexual abuse. So if I'm going to be very, very vague in how I am describing what happens, but just in case you have younger people who are listening to this, the second half of this episode is probably not an episode for younger viewers. Donald Trump is criticized for saying that the mainstream media is the enemy of the people. But what if he's right? What would make them the enemy of the people and who are the people? I would say the people are the citizens of the country the press is working for. As far as what would make them the enemy, well, what if the press was purposefully dividing us into classes and groups based on race? What if the press was falsely painting one race as ignorant and hateful? What if the press was purposely not giving us information about large groups of people living in our country that want to destroy us? What if the press was covering for a large child sex trafficking ring? What if the press mocked and then helped deplatform anyone getting close to uncovering what they were doing? Would that make them the enemy of the people? I would say yes, and today we're going to look at two stories that show that this is exactly what the media is doing. The first one is the Don Cherry story. When I first heard that Don Cherry had been fired for racist comments, my first thought was, well, maybe he did make some racist comments. So before posting anything about it, I listened to what he had to say. Now, I had to listen a few times. Seriously, nothing racist didn't even point out a race. I couldn't see a problem at all. So here, you listen to what he said. You know, I was talking to a veteran. I said, I'm not going to run the poppy thing anymore because what's the sense? I live in Mississauga. Nobody wears, uh, uh, very few people wear uh, poppy. Downtown Toronto, forget it, downtown Toronto. Nobody wears a poppy. And I'm not going to, he says, wait a minute. How about running it for the people that buy them? Now you go to the small cities and you know, you, you know, those, the rows on rows, you people love, you, you, they come here, whatever it is, you love our way of life, you love our milk and honey, at least you can pay a couple of bucks for poppies or something like that. These guys pay for your way of life that you enjoy in Canada. These guys pay the, the, the biggest price. Anyhow, I'm going to run it again for you great people and good Canadians that bought a poppy. I'm still going to run it. Anyhow, what before it? Here we are, November 11th. We're in Trelinkin British Cemetery in France. On uh, November 11th, I want everybody to remember when you're buying a poppy and you see row after row of our Canadian dead here. And I'm going to put here, we visited Thomas William Mackenzie, military metal and bar, Canadian field artillery. He died seven days before the end of the war. 27 years old. So when you're walking by and you see our great legions, guys standing there and they offer you a poppy, think of all this. These guys gave their lives. At least you can buy a poppy. Here is how the media covered it. Let's just read a few headlines. Don Cherry under fire for claiming new immigrants don't wear poppies. 
I cringed how some former current soldiers reacted to Don Cherry's poppy comments. Don Cherry sparks online backlash for comments on immigration. Sportsnet apologized for Don Cherry's anti-immigration comments. What the puck? It was time for Rogers to put Don Cherry out to pasture. Don Cherry says he's not apologizing for comments he made on immigration. Hockey commenter Don Cherry fired for comments made about immigrants. Now, real media would have sounded something like this. Did Don Cherry's comments refer to immigrants? That would be a question to ask. Maybe they could ask Don Cherry. It seems he's always been pretty open about what he believes. And if he was referring to immigrants, I'm pretty sure that he's going to say that. But instead, the media tells you how you should interpret what he says. And then what do they do next? It's even worse. They immediately find every immigrant who's wearing a poppy and talks to them. They also start immediately pushing the idea that hockey is just too white. So now we're jumping from Don Cherry's comments being interpreted in only the worst possible way to hockey in general is too white. Then on some show called The Social, I guess it's like a Canadian version of The View. I never heard of it before, but apparently we have a show that's even more annoying than The View, if that's possible. A host from this show on The Social went on a rant, and here's what she said. It struck a nerve because I'm told he's a Canadian icon, and he's a symbol of the great sport of hockey, which is the sport that unites us across this country. And that narrative is the one that strikes a nerve with me because I don't worship at the, ho- the altar of hockey. I never have. And maybe it's because of where I grew up, but there's, there's a, and going to a couple different universities, there's a certain type of person in my mind, in my experience, who does. And they all tended to be white boys who weren't, um, let's say, very nice. They were not generally thoughtful. They were often bullies. Uh, their parents were able to afford to put them, you know, spend $5,000 a year on minor hockey instead of $5,000, a lot of money. You could do other things besides spending your time in an arena. You can go on a trip and learn about the world, see other things, eh? You know, like it's, it, the place is a, the world is a big place. Maybe get side out of that bubble. And for me, Don Cherry is the walking and talking representative of that type. Mm-hmm. And he's a type of person that now people wanted, like, and I know he's done some good things, but at the same time, when someone good is also to, able to make fun of people who believe in climate science, who's also able to be, like, whether he's charming or not, but he's still a bigot and a misogynist, when you're, you know, to have those two things, like, I dismiss those people. And it, it, I find it embarrassing. I find it embarrassing that there's a big chunk of the country that is so upset about this. Hockey doesn't mean anything to me. I'm sorry. It's and not you're part still of a great Canadian. Canada. And, and you're I'm still, still okay. a great Canadian. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there is really no way to take this other than racist. She points out a race, a gender, a sport. She's very specific in her hate. There really is only one way to take this. White hockey players are bullies who don't travel and come from rich families. First of all, can I point out that she said with $5,000 a year you can travel? Now, as a parent with four kids, let me tell you, with $5,000 your family can travel, they just can't travel very far. Once you get plane tickets for six people, a few outings, hotels, $5,000 is not showing you the world in any way. Plus, you should have your children in sports getting them active. That's part of being a good parent. I don't do hockey, but 
I've always had my girls in some kind of sports, and yes, it's expensive. We have to find ways to cut money so they're able to participate in these sports, but it is important. And maybe, just a thought, Jess Allen should be spending more time in a gym or in some kind of an active hobby, because it looks like she could be a bit more active. I'm just saying. But besides this, people were pretty angry about her comments, and fire Jess Allen was trending all week, which is a very rare thing. Did she get fired? No. She went on the air to say she didn't mean all white hockey players, just the ones she personally knew. She was just telling her lived experience, kind of like Don Cherry was telling his lived experience. Don Cherry actually pointed to the exact town where he lived to clarify in his statement he was talking about his lived experience. Then the media ignores a story that, quite frankly, is fairly relevant to this whole thing. Here's a Facebook post explaining how the Islamic schools will be dealing with Remembrance Day. And I'm going to read this whole thing to you. Today is Remembrance Day, and here's an interesting conversation I had with my daughter about why we don't celebrate it. I was talking to my daughters, and then names her two daughters there, about whether or not there is a school today because it might be a holiday for Remembrance Day. And I mentioned that Islamic schools, they won't have it as a holiday because we don't celebrate it in Islam. My daughter asked, why not? I told her that's because it's a day to remember those who died while fighting and killing Muslims. She said, but it's a day to remember everyone who died in wars. I said, okay, do you know who fought in World War II? She said, the whole world, and we all laughed. She knew she was joking. I said, no, it was a war between Nazis against Britain, France, America, and some others. I asked her, so do we remember the fallen from among the Nazis? She said, no, obviously not. I said, see, we don't remember everyone who died in the wars. We all remember those who died from among the British front and so on. I said, okay, now who do you know who fought in World War I? The old, my older daughter, she says her name again, said, wait, I know this one. It was Britain against the Ottoman Islamic State. And I also shed a tear of pride at that moment because I don't remember teaching her that. And I told her, you just won $100. Of course, she didn't win $100. She said, I learned that in school last year. I told her she was correct. And I said the Ottomans were Muslims, and Remembrance Day first started after Britain and France and the others defeated us, killing millions of our people, and then made this celebration starting on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, November 11th, to forever remember their soldiers who fought to defeat us in that war and then invade our lands. This is why we don't celebrate Remembrance Day, because we would be remembering their soldiers who killed millions of Muslims. She said, oh, okay. Someone might say, don't you think that's too much to teach a young girl? And I say, she's old enough to be taught to remember the dead among the colonist West. Which is old enough to remember the dead amongst the Muslims. We cannot allow our children to be raised to look fondly on the crimes of the colonists and the capitalist West. Or to be taught to feel that this is in any way their own history. We have our own history, and we must teach our children to look at the world from our own perspective. Our children will either be our future, or they will be the future of the liberal, secular, colonist West. May Allah protect the minds and hearts of our children and raise them to become future leaders, teachers, and intellectuals of the Muslim 
world. Amen. So, kind of relevant to the news cycle from this week, don't you think? And first of all, in World War II, it wasn't the Nazis versus the world. Clearly, she doesn't know her history very well. Since there was, we fought more than just the Nazis, Japan, kind of a big part for starters of World War II. But also, let's look at the empire, the Ottoman Empire. They killed millions of people. We call it the Armenian Genocide. Actually put them into cattle trains and sent them to concentration camps to have them killed. Millions of them. Hitler actually used this genocide as a blueprint when planning his final solution to get rid of the Jews. So the Ottoman Empire was actually pretty much like the Nazis. So maybe, maybe if Don Cherry was talking about certain types of immigrants, he might have had a point. Maybe his lived experience of not seeing many people in Mississauga and Toronto wearing a poppy was real. To be honest, I've never seen a poppy pinned on a burqa. Maybe you have. I just haven't. But that's just my lived experience. So what does this tell us about the media? First, they changed the story by interpreting Don's comments. Then they pitted us against each other based on race. Then they left out some pretty important parts of the story. If you're a hockey family this week, it would not be hard to think that the mainstream media was your enemy. But would the media ever go so far as to cover up for, I don't know, a child sex trafficking ring? I mean, if the media ever had a story about sex and an island created for pedophiles and a long list of political figures and even royalty who visited the island, they would never skip that kind of story, would they? All right, let's see. This is the story this week that I'm going to dive into with the news behind the story. Let's start with one day in a Vanity Fair magazine office. A woman named Vicki Ward is talking to the editor. She has a story of a man named Jeffrey Epstein, and she started with just an assignment for a puff piece of this man who is friends with the Clintons and who travels with them to Africa. But when Vicky interviews this mysterious man, he continually asks her, what do you have on the girls? Vicky is shocked by this, but as a journalist, she knows. There is obviously a reason he keeps asking these questions. But as Vicky Ward starts to look into the life of this man, she can't really figure out how he made his money. She also finds the names of some women who have accused Jeffrey Epstein of sexual assault. Some of those assaults happened when the women were children. She finds two sisters who were sexually assaulted by Jeffrey, and she talks to the girls who cry as they tell the story. She also talks to the family and friends of the girls who all said the girls told them right away. They were also told if they said anything, Jeffrey is so rich, he would have them killed. Vicky promises that the story will go public and she will help them. Jeffrey Epstein begins to call Vicky at her home, tells her if she writes the story, her twin babies will probably die. Vicky knows this is a story that has to be written. She writes it and then sends it to her editor. Vicky gets called into the office. And this is where we are, the Vanity Fair magazine office. A man named Graydon Carter was cutting the story because Jeffrey Epstein was giving the magazine some great pictures that they wanted. So the story was cut. That was 20 years ago. The story that gets printed in the magazine is entitled 
the talented Mr. Epstein. Meanwhile, the girls receive calls from Jeffrey Epstein telling them to be careful. He tells them the names of the roads that they drive on and says, there's a lot of ways to die out there. We have to ask ourselves, how many young girls would have been saved had the story been printed? Who is Jeffrey Epstein? And would this be the only time the media would ignore the story? Epstein was born in 1953. His parents were married shortly after he was born. They were not really a well-to-do family. Jeffrey had a younger brother named Mark, and they grew up in a simple middle-income family on Coney Island. But Jeffrey was really smart and musical. He graduated from high school two years early, and he was a talented piano player. He went on to study math at New York University, and he left without getting his degree. But even without a degree, he got a job working at a private school called Dalton School. And through this school, he met many influential families. He only worked for two years before he got fired for poor performance. There was also rumors at the school of inappropriate relationships with the female students. While at the school, Epstein met a man named Alan Greenberg. He was the chief executive officer at Bear Stairs. Greenberg offered Epstein a job as a junior assistant at the floor trader. It didn't take long for Epstein to move up the ranks, and soon he was an optional trader, and then just four years later, he was partner. Epstein held multiple passports in different names. They showed him with residents in places from Australia to Saudi Arabia. Then, in 1988, Epstein founded his own financial management firm, J. Epstein & Company, and his first client was a man named Leslie Waxner. Leslie Waxner was the CEO of L Brands and Victoria's Secret. Leslie Waxner gave Epstein full power of attorney of all of his affairs and also sold him a mansion for a really cheap price. Epstein then meets a girl named Jalen Maxwell. Her father died mysteriously in a boating accident and she's been left with his fortune. Epstein becomes friends with Jalen and some believe she was in love with him. She moves into his mansion and travels with him everywhere he goes. He then buys an island. It's his own island with no rules, no laws. It's now been nicknamed Pedophile Island. He also buys a plane. His plane is nicknamed the Galota Express. This is in reference to all of the underage girls who are always around on the plane. He travels to Africa on a regular basis with Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew. They're regular flyers. He also flies with Kevin Spacey and singers such as Courtney Love. He uses his connection with Victoria's Secret to tell girls he wants to meet them to see if they could be models. When they meet up with him in hotel rooms, he tells them they'll have to be naked in order for him to tell if they could work for Victoria's Secret. The girls are minors. There are complaints made to Victoria's Secret about this, but nothing happens to him. One day, he spots a young girl at a country club. Her name is Virginia Roberts. She's reading a book on massage therapy. She is a young teenager. Jeffrey Epstein offers her a job. She'll travel the world, meet famous people, and he'll help her get her degree in massage therapy. She's excited, and a few days later, her father drives her to Jeffrey Epstein's mansion and drops her off. She's met by Jalen, and she's immediately taught how to massage Epstein in a way he likes it. She's groomed for sexual abuse and is soon being abused on a regular basis. She's told if she tells anyone, no one will believe her. Epstein shows her pictures of himself with very powerful men, Bill Clinton and even Prince Andrew. She's told that he is so powerful, nothing will ever happen to him. But he can't have anyone killed. Virginia does travel and meets lots of famous people, but she's being sex trafficked. 
After a few years, she becomes too old for Epstein. He sends her to Thailand to find a young Thai girl to bring back to America for him. She leaves, but in Thailand, finds an Australian man who agrees to marry her and take her to Australia. She's finally free after years of being a sex slave to the rich and famous. Of course, had Victoria Ward's story come out, she would have been freed many years earlier. Then, one day, at a high school, a fight breaks out. One girl sits in an office, her parents and her principal trying to find out why she attacked a group of students. She refuses to answer. Her parents open her backpack and find $300. Where did this come from? She looks terrified and doesn't want to talk. But then, she begins to cry. Finally, she tells the story. The kids she attacked were calling her a whore because they knew what had happened. Everyone knew what had happened. She'd been told by a friend there was a quick way to make some big cash. There was a rich man that paid well for massages. The girl said she's only a teenager and she didn't really know anything about massages. It's fine. He doesn't care. He likes it when teen girls give him massages. So she went. She went with this girl to a large mansion. She was brought in and given something to drink. Then she was sent upstairs. As she walked down the hallway, she passed large paintings and photographs of naked girls her age. She entered the room where a man was waiting for her. He told her to take off her clothes. All of them. After everything was done, he gave her a few hundred dollars and told her not to talk to anyone. But the kids at school knew where she had gone because she wasn't the first. The parents were shocked and immediately went to the police. This was not the first police report against Jeffrey Epstein. There were the sisters from a few years back, but this time the police chief who had the case come across his desk was determined to get to the bottom of the case. Victoria Ward had tried to cover the story and bring it to the public a few years earlier. This girl and many others would have been saved if the story had been published. Jeffrey ends up pleading guilty to having sex with a prostitute. Think about that. Prostitute. And spends a little over a year in prison. Well, sort of. He's allowed to go home to his mansion every day and only has to be in the prison at night for sleeping. He is released and he starts a mission to get his name cleared. He says he's not a sex offender. He slept with a prostitute. He says that's like calling someone a murderer who stole a bagel. Epstein makes friends with Elon Musk and donates millions of dollars to science and studies. He wants his image changed from a sex offender to scientist. Then in 2015, a reporter from ABC News named Amy Roderick begins looking into the life of Jeffrey Epstein. She finds a girl in Australia named Virginia and tries to get her to come forward with her story. At first, Virginia refuses and tells Amy she has no idea how powerful Epstein is. But Amy tells her it's a story that has to be told and promises she'll make sure everyone knows what kind of a monster Epstein is. So, Virginia agrees to meet with Amy and tells her the whole story. She names names and she has pictures, world leaders, actors, singers. She has it all. She was immersed in the whole crazy thing for years and was the main girl being trafficked. Amy heads back to ABC with her story. And she's told, who's Jeffrey Epstein? That's a stupid story. We're not covering it. Also, the palace found out about the story and told ABC they would get no interviews or photographs of the royals if they published the story. So they didn't. They buried it. Of course, the idea that Hillary Clinton was at this point running for president and her husband was one of the main people being talked about in the piece, that probably had nothing to do with ABC refusing to air Amy's story. 
Now, during the election, there were so many stories circulating about a child sex trafficking ring that the Clintons were part of. The media not only did not cover it, but they said that they were crazy conspiracy theories and only stupid people believed them. After Donald Trump won the election, the press hit even harder on the online media that was trying to find the stories about the child sex trafficking ring. They blamed them for Hillary's loss and said that they were Russians. Think about that. ABC and Vanity Fair both knew the stories were true and had all the information to blow it out of the water, but instead they mocked anyone online who was talking about it. Then on July 6, 2019, Epstein was arrested again. He did everything he could to buy himself out of prison, but this time it didn't work because this time the media covered it. They covered it because they tried to tie him to Trump. That didn't work. However, in trying to bury Trump, they did actually cover the story, and the story was horrible. Then an online media uploaded drone footage of the island. There were temples and areas that looked like satanic ritual sites, ones that would have involved sacrifices. Everything was crumbling around Epstein. The question was, who is he going to take down with him? Then one day, before he could go to trial, his roommate in his jail cell is moved, and he's now alone in the room. That night, both of the guards fall asleep and are not able to check on him every three hours like they're supposed to. And the camera outside of his cell breaks. And in the morning, he's dead. The person who does the autopsy says it's a homicide, but her boss signs off on the autopsy, changes it to suicide. So the official story is that he killed himself. No one really believes that. But what about the little black book? Has the media named names? Has Amy or Virginia Ward's story been published? Or does his death just delete the story? Do you really think the sex trafficking ring ended with his death? And by the way, where is Jillian Maxwell? Still so many questions we need answers to. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a media that wasn't the enemy of the people who would find out some true answers for us? So to sum up, the mainstream media is definitely the enemy of the people. If you'd like to hear more of my podcasts, or read my blogs, or check out my video series, please go to lauraleesiemens.com. I'll see you next week.